If you have your Bibles, get them out. We're going to start at the end of Exodus 35 this morning, and uh, we will actually finish the book of Exodus this morning. Uh, So something that started all the way back uh, last September will come to completion uh, this morning. And so uh, let me just talk for a moment about where we're going to be heading in these next number of months with respect to our preaching, uh, given that we're wrapping up the book of Exodus. And so, so we wrap up the book of Exodus this Sunday. Uh, next week, we'll actually uh, do Exodus again, except we'll deal with it in a flyover manner. And so we'll look at the whole of the book now on the back end of it and all that God had done and all that uh, comes out of it, but try to connect that to your life, to my life uh, today. <clears throat> even though the story is almost 3,500 years old. And so we'll do that next week. Uh, the following week, we, we had built in a couple of weeks. We weren't quite sure where we were going to land with the finish. And so on the following week, we'll do a standalone, uh, really around suffering and lament. Uh, our church has just had uh, an, an inordinate amount of that in the last number of months. And so I think by God's grace, uh, we have a Sunday. So we're going to lean into that. And we're going we're gonna to do that. And then uh, on May 20th, we'll begin our summer series, which is going to be through uh, selections in the Psalms. So a variety of different Psalms that we're going to preach through uh, starting on May 20th. Uh, I will preach on May 20th, and then I will be heading out on sabbatical. So I'll be gone for two months, uh, but we'll have a number of guys who will be preaching through different parts of the book of Psalms. And more importantly, we'll have God's word uh, being proclaimed. Amen. Amen. And so it'll be a great summer here at Faith. I will be back in the pulpit on July 29th. Uh, we'll have a few weeks that we've intentionally left open, partly because uh, I would imagine over the course of time on sabbatical, there'll be some things that God will uh, bring to my mind and to my attention with respect to the church that we'll want to engage. And then on September 9th, a couple of things will happen on September 9th. One, that is the date that we're going to go to two services. Uh, and that will also be the date where we launch our fall sermon series in the book of Daniel. And so we'll be going through Daniel. That'll run us somewhere to Thanksgiving, Christmas-ish time uh, in, in that frame, which is crazy for us to be thinking about Thanksgiving and Christmas. I can't believe we're on the heels of summer already, uh, but it's coming, right? It's coming and it's coming quickly. And as we get closer to 2019, we'll talk about uh, what's coming there. But for now, we find ourselves in the book of Exodus. That's where we're going to be this morning. And I'm guessing all of you at some point in time in your life, you've, you've thought, you've wondered, you've said, and no doubt you have heard someone make this statement before. What's God's will for my life? Ever been there? Ever wondered that? If you're like, I don't know, you're lying in church, okay? Uh, All of us, all of us, all of us have wrestled with and wondered about that. And certainly as a pastor, uh, it's not lost on me. I get asked a a lot of times by people, you know, I'm just, what do you think God's will for my life is? And I like to direct people to 1 Thessalonians 4.3 where Paul says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. I was like, oh, it's for you to get sanctified. Which most people don't really like that answer. Um... For a number of reasons, and typically it's, it's like, well, I, I know, I know, but right, I, I want to know the specifics. I want to know the details. I want to know what it is that, like, like, what job is God calling me to? Or should I marry this person? And should we have kids? And what should retirement look like? And where should we live? And I want all these answers. And really what God would say is, you know, you're, listen, you're to love Jesus and you're to walk with him. That's my will for you. And in fact, I think the Bible actually gives great insight into the simplicity 
of a life that is simply surrendered to Jesus and the unfolding of God's will day in and day out over the course of our life. In fact, this is where I think God's word is going to lead us this morning. It's around this idea right here. So I'm going to use the phrase missional living. And I think that, that, that what we see at the end of Exodus is really a portrait of what it is to live on mission, to, to, to live as men and women who are committed to the kingdom of God. But missional living is God's people embracing the call to give and to work for God's glory. Missional living is God's people. We're going to embrace the call that God has for us. We're going to give and we're going to work for God, ultimately, to and for His glory. Okay, Mike, I get that, but that's still really vague and generic in terms of God's will for my life. No, no, don't, don't try to run ahead of this. In fact, the details will, will oddly fall into place if you will simply embrace God's call. And you can, you can argue and, and, and you can go at God all you want about, well, I want, the, I want details and I want specifics. God might just look at you and say, tough. I'm not giving you those. And so with that, right, as a frame, we come to this huge portion of text. And so actually, before we get into this, let me do this. Let me pray. And, and as always, we'll pray for another church in the area. And then we'll begin to walk through what God has for us here this morning. Why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we come before you, we thank you, God, for your word. Uh, God, we thank you that you call us to live on mission. God, we thank you that we get to be a part of building your kingdom. And God, while there's maybe a lot of details and specifics that are unknown to us or for a substantial amount of time in our life, we won't know them. God, we thank you that you know them, that you're working them out, and that what you call us to isn't to have those things figured out, but to walk closely with you and to love you. And so we pray as we walk through this text that you would help us to see that, to know that, to apply that, and to live in that manner and in that way. So God, would we be people who live on mission God, we pray for Christ Church of Albuquerque and for Pastor Nathan Sherman, and we pray that they would be people who live on mission, that they would be people who are committed to to what you call them to be and what you call them to do, and that they would be faithful men and women seeking to make much of you. God, by the power of your Spirit, come and open your word and come and give us all that we need. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is Missional Living. And, and as we finish Exodus, let me, let me just start by saying this, that don't think of the, finish, the, the finishing of Exodus as coming to the end of a story or coming to the end of the book. This is really the end of a chapter. And if you remember, when we started Exodus, we talked about that Exodus was really book two of five. Uh, so even in its purest sense in the Pentateuch, there's three other books that will continue with this story. But in the broader scope of God's larger story, this is really one of the early chapters of what God is going to do and what's going to unfold throughout all of history. But I couldn't help but notice as I was studying the passage this week, all of the ways that the expectations that God has for the people of Israel and how eerily similar they are the, the, the same expectations that God has for the New Testament church and for believers today. And so really, I think what's happening here is, is in, for one of the first times, God is laying out what it looks like to live for him, to live on mission for him, to be about building the kingdom of God and not just our own little personal 
kingdoms. And so there's four, if you look in your bulletin, you'll notice there's four points. And, and if you look at the different breakdowns in terms of the verses or chapters assigned to them, you'll notice that three of them are just a handful of verses. And so on three of these four points, we'll really try to live in the terrain of the text and the, the specificity of what's going on. And then you'll notice that the, the third point is probably 90% of the content of what we're going to cover this morning. And it's a much broader scope. And I'll explain why we're just dealing with it in a very generic sense as we get a little closer to it. But missional living, here's the first thing. And as we move through this, this idea is, okay, yes, God, I want to be a man. I want to be a woman who lives on mission. Help me to do that. Well, let's learn from the people of God what that looks like. Here's the first thing is that missional, as missional people, we embrace God's personal call on His people, or more specifically, on us. So look at, starting in chapter 35, verse 30, and I'm going to read through 36.1. It says this, And Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he's filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. And it begins to describe all the different gifts that God has put into him. Verse 32, to devise artistic designs in work or to work in gold and silver and bronze in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for every for work in every skilled craft. And he's inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. And he's filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. And so laying out all of the different skills that God had put into these individuals. 36, verse 1 says this, Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And so what you see here at the beginning, the outset, in a moment, these guys are going to begin to actually construct the tabernacle. And, and that, that will really be the bulk of that, that huge portion of text that will deal in a broader sense. But right here at the outset, there's, I think, a really crucial thing that happens. And it's that these individuals are embracing the, the call that God has put on them. In fact, notice three things specific to embracing God's personal call on our life. First of all, look at verse 30. See, the Lord is called by name, Bezalel. See, God's call is specific. God specifically called this man. God specifically called this individual. And you may or may not realize this, but God has a specific call on your life in the same way that God has a specific call on his life. All over the scriptures, you see the specific call that God puts on his people. Think of Isaiah 43, where he says, child, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You're mine. It's God's word to his people. His call is specific. Okay, so what? What what does that mean? What's the implication of that? What's the big deal about that? Well, here's the big deal about that. Is that God knows you. God knows you. And God chooses to put his call upon you. Not because you're amazing. Right? If, if you watched any of the NFL drafts over the last few days, especially on Thursday night, the, the first guys that were taken in the draft, 
Those are the most talented individuals, and, and those are the guys that teams covet. Okay, and God's not up in heaven like, oh man, man, if I could get that guy, that would change everything for us. God doesn't need us. Right? There's, there, there's no top picks in the draft in the church. It's God's kindness and His grace towards us that He puts His call upon the, His call upon us. But think about this. Think about this. God knows you. Not about you. Not just things about you. God knows you. It's actually kind of scary to think about, isn't it? Like, oh man, like he knows everything about me. And yet he still chooses to put his call upon you. I mean, there's something about being known, isn't there? I think that's one of the hardest parts about moving to a new area. No one knows you. They might know things about you. They might know uh, uh, really generic aspects of who you are, but they don't know you, do they? I remember shortly after we moved here, and uh, I had made a comment that was misunderstood. Um, I'm certainly prone to saying some really stupid and obnoxious things. This was not one of those. I've gotten pretty good at identifying which it is. Okay, so this was not one of those. It was a comment that was just misunderstood. And as I attempted to work through and to figure out and to be right with this person, it struck me. They have no idea who I am. That, that, that's why they don't understand why I'm saying what I'm saying. That's why they're offended by this. This is why they're bothered by this. They don't know me. And it was this profound moment where you look around and you go, no one here really knows me. They know about me. They could tell you some things about me. They don't know me. See, that's not true with God. God knows us. He knows us deeply. He knows us personally. And it's part of his specific call for us is that he knows us. That's a beautiful thing. But keep in mind, right, part of this call is that we have to embrace this. We have to accept this, not just simply knowing about this. God's call is specific. Look at also this in verse 31. Talking about Bezalel, he says he's filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. And then in the next handful of verses, gives with specific detail all of the skills that he's put into him. Not only is God's call specific, it's also equipping God's call is equipping. And in the same way that God puts skill and intelligence and, um, and, and, and knowledge and, and most importantly, his spirit into this individual, God actually does the same with you and I. At the moment that you and I embrace the call that God has for us, his spirit comes and dwells within us, which is really a beautiful truth, isn't it? That the spirit of God will come and dwell inside of us. And not only does he give us a spirit, but he actually gives us a skill set. He equips us to do the job that God has called us to do. So he, he doesn't, he, he gives us talent. He gives us skill. Now, have you ever done a job where, where you didn't have some of the necessary tools to accomplish a job? So maybe you've got a hammer and nails, but what you need are some screws and a screwdriver. Um, or, or maybe you need a specialty tool in order to, to get to a certain thing. If you've ever had to work through one of those, that's a nightmare. Or, or maybe you're missing some key pieces of information and trying to figure something out. Or if you're like most guys, when you get something, you take the instruction manual and you throw it out. I mean, that one's on you, fellas, right? But you're trying to figure it out, but you're like, oh, I can't for the life of me figure it out. Well, if you would just look at step six in that silly packet that you threw away, uh, it would be helpful to you. But if you've ever been in that place... 
You know what it is to be given a task, but not be equipped to do it. That's not what God does. Right? God gives us the tools. He gives us the resources. He gives us what we need. But listen very carefully. Notice he talks about Bezalel. In verse 34, he talks about Aholiab. And then in 36.1, he says, Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman. God does it collectively. God gives to the entirety of his people what is needed in order to accomplish his mission. He does not give it to one person. So if you're sitting in here this morning going, well, I don't need anybody else, you're wrong. God gives the skills collectively to the whole of the church or to the whole of his people in order to do the things that we need to do. And so part of embracing God's call is understanding that God has given me something that is to the, the blessing and the benefit of the entirety of the body. So I got to live and function within the body in order for that to be manifested and to have its full effect. And then on the other side, I got to let other people serve me. I got to let other people help me. I got to let other people come alongside me. Otherwise, I'm short circuiting and short changing what God has put in to them. God's call is specific. God's call is equipping. Here's the third thing. Look at 36.1. God's call puts us to work. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. So God's call puts us to work. Specifically, in accordance with what God has commanded. So there, there's no freelancing here. Well, you know, I know God has called me to something, but I really want to do this over here. No, no. God, God gave specific instructions on what it is that you and I are to do. God's call puts us to work. Now, for some of us, that word work is akin to a swear or a curse word. We don't like that word. So let me just briefly say a couple things about work that I think are helpful for us to be reminded of. First of all, Work was created before the fall and work is good. Did you hear that? Work was created before the fall. It's a good thing. So if you are sitting here and that you have this hatred of work, and some of you are sitting in here, you don't hate work, but it's actually an idol. It's more than God intended it to be. So if you're sitting in here and you find yourself in either one of these positions, that is a distortion of God's good design and intent with respect to work. It was a, initially a good thing. And so when we talk about God putting us to work, that's a good thing. Listen to what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2. He says there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Work is a good thing in its proper context, in its proper place. Here's the second thing. God expects us to work. God expects you and I to work. Now, let me be really, really clear on this. Because most of the time when you and I, especially in American context, when we think of work, we have a one-to-one -one correlation with having a job. And while in some respects there's, there's similarities and there's carryover and there's crossover, in some respects, it's broader than just this. In fact, here, the work that we're talking about is tied to ministry and service in God's kingdom. Further, some of you will work for parts of your life, but will spend seasons of your life or large seasons of your life not having an actual job 
in the sense of I go to a place or I'm employed by a company and I derive a paycheck from them. That's very different than what we're saying here that God expects us to work. Here's two ways that this plays out. Just because you have a career, God does not exempt you from service or ministry. Mike, my job is so demanding. I am so busy. How many people imagine God going, you know, that's, you're right. So you just take a pass on sharing the gospel and loving your neighbor and, and, and living on mission. You really are working hard. Anyone see that? I, I don't see that plan out. Right? There's this expectation that a part of, of our life is invested in ministry. Here's the other side of this. What does it look like if I don't have a job, whether that I'm at home with children, I don't have to work, or I'm retired? How many people retired in the scriptures? Uh, Well, there were plenty of people that ceased to do certain work in terms of a profession. You know when you retire from ministry? When you die. That's when you retire from ministry. I'm serious. Or, you know, if if you're part of the crew that gets me around when Jesus comes back, I guess you get to skip death and retire same time. That'd be a pretty awesome retirement party. Okay, but until then, there's an expectation that you and I are going to work, that we're going to serve. And so what we see right out of the gate, right, we embrace God's personal call on his people. God's call is specific. God's call is equipping. God's call puts us to work. We got to say, okay, I'm in on that. And then notice these next two things begin to flesh out some of what that looks like. Look at verse 2 through 7. In fact, let me read it here, and then we'll talk about it for a moment. Starting in chapter 36, verse 2, and Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning, And then listen to verse 4. I love this. So that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. Every single person is going to Moses, tell them to stop. Like they're bringing too much. This is every pastor's dream to stand up in front of his church. Y'all got to just stop giving. Okay. Right. Like it's every pastor's dream. Moses is living the dream here. All right. Um, but, but Moses, so he gives this command in verse six, Moses gave the command and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp. I mean, this is nuts. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. Isn't that an awesome picture? It's almost like Moses holding on to this lady, like, I'm donating these linens. I'm going to bring it. And they're just holding them back. They're restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. So missional living, first, we embrace God's personal call on his people. Secondly, we give generously to God's work. I mean, that's what we see here, right? Is the people giving generously. And actually, this starts back in chapter 35 when they're called to contribute. You go back and read the first part of chapter 35, and this is where God puts this call out for them. But in every aspect of the work, they are exceeding what is needed in order to do what God has called them to do. Now, now, this is really, really important for us 
to not miss this detail because it'd be easy to read over it and to just miss it. But in the context of the book of Exodus, here's my question. Where'd all this stuff come from? Think about this. Where'd it come from? I mean, are they picking this up on the desert floor as they're walking along? This came from the Egyptians as they plundered them as they were leaving. Here's another way of saying this. God gave it to them. God provided them with everything that they had. Okay, now here's the connection. Where'd you get all of your stuff? Where'd you get everything that you own? I'm guessing, I mean, I would like to think none of you have looted Egyptians at any point in time in your life. <laughs> Anymore, it just wouldn't surprise me. It's just, it's shocking what you hear from time to time. But, but I'm confident that the answer is the same. You got it from God. You got everything that you have from God. Your, your, your spouse, your children, your house, your car, your job, your savings, your retirement, the furniture, um, the, the, the dishes and the, the, the accents in your home, the health that you have, the medicine that you take, everything that you have is given to you from God. In fact, the Bible tells us that. 1 Corinthians 4 says, what do you have that you did not receive? The implication is nothing. James 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So you can start with all the noise all you want about, well, I work hard and I've really pushed myself. And Okay, who gave you the work ethic? Who gave you the intellect? Who put you through school? Who gave you the job? At the end of the day, we're going to end up in the same place. Every single thing that you have was given to you by God. And I think it's helpful for us to be reminded of that because sometimes you start, or some of you are already nervous because we're in church and I'm talking about giving. So you're like, oh, gee, is this going to be one of those sermons? I'm not even sure what one of those sermons is, okay? Um, but, but we miss this idea when you talk about giving. And, and here's, here's how you know you've missed it. The moment you start talking about what's mine, you already missed it. You already missed the fact that you don't have, you don't own anything. You can, okay, you can take full credit and full claim on your sin. That one's yours, okay? God didn't give you that. You earned that one yourself. Everything else is God's. And so two things, two things that we see here with respect to giving generously. First of all, look at verse three. They received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. Part of giving generously is that we give regularly. There's a regular rhythm to giving. Now, I don't know that every single person brought something every single day, but it's, it's hard to argue that there's not this regular rhythm of giving and sharing and participating in this. And as the people are reminded of God's provision out of gratitude, out of worship, out of appreciation, they are turning and saying, God, here is some of your stuff that, that we want to give back to you. And have we not seen as a church in the last year the great benefit and blessing of just the kindness and the generosity of God? I mean, it's been insane this last year. All of the ways that God has been so generous. And think about this. Moses standing in front of the people. He said, okay, bring the stuff. Bring the materials. Now, one of two things is going to happen. They're going to bring it or they're not going to bring it, right? I mean, that's what's going to happen. But what's going to determine that is rooted in their attitude around how they view those things. 
for the people that are looking at that going, no, no, this is mine. And I've typically found people struggle with giving when that is their approach to the things that they possess. They think they're an owner. They fail to realize they're nothing more than a steward. You're a steward. And when you stand before God, God's going to ask you, hey, how did you handle all the things that I entrusted to you? And it's not just physical resources. He's going to ask you about your spouse and your children and grandchildren, if that's applicable, and, and, and other souls that he's entrusted to your care. So on one side, you have that. On the other side, you have, well, I mean, think about the nation of Israel. A year ago, I was a slave and I had nothing. And now we're constructing this huge thing with all kinds of beautiful and ornate and valuable items in the desert. I know I didn't do that. God has given us this. See, this is the conflict that goes on inside of us. Is it mine or is it his? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's his. And then this is inevitably the question that follows that up. How much? It's usually asked like this. How much do I have to give? Okay, so... um, if that's the question, can I just say we're, we're not even asking the right question and we've completely missed the heart of God. See, if giving is in fact an act of worship, which it is, then asking, hey, what's required, which is really another way of saying, God, what's the minimum standard? We fail to address the heart and the intent of what God is after. Now take this out of Take this out of finances and us with God or our time and God and just think about it in human terms. So next month, Becky and I will celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary and she's not in here. She's teaching right now. But imagine if I were to say to my wife a month from now on our anniversary, hey, you know, I've appreciated the last 15 years. This has been great. How much do I have to keep loving you for this to be okay? (laughs) Nothing's going to be okay after that question is asked, isn't it? Honestly, it's repulsive when you think about it like that, isn't it? Like if my wife said that to me, that would be devastating. If one of my kids came up to me and was like, hey, dad, how much do I have to love you to like still be your child? Like what, what does that take? Get out of here with that. I mean, that's repulsive. Because I've reduced the relationship down to nothing more than this duty or obligation Which, by the way, when you read through the Old Testament, God is constantly telling Israel he hates that. And in fairness, you and I do too. We don't want to be treated that way. Now, if you want to talk about specifics or what you should or shouldn't give, you can come follow up with me. I'm I'm not even going to touch it right now. You want to have that conversation? I'll happily have that conversation with you. I want to put two questions in front of us, and I'll let you wrestle with the Lord over these two things. When it comes to giving... What would cause my heart to fight against giving generously to God? When it comes to giving, what would cause my heart to fight against giving generously back to the Lord? Like, what is that thing? Maybe there's not anything in your life. If there is, what is that thing? Is it a legitimate thing? Or is it an area of sin or blindness that needs to be addressed? What would prevent... Or what would cause my heart to fight against giving generously to God? Secondly, um, what, what, when it comes to giving, what prevents me from giving regularly to God? Why is this not a regular rhythm? Why is this not something that's constantly happening in my life? 
See, a heart that gives readily will worship regularly. That just is natural. And so when we talk about uh, giving generously to God's work, we give regularly. Notice this secondly, that we give in multiple ways. Look at verse 4. So that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task of the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing. So in verse 3, you've got people bringing stuff more than they even need or can handle. Verse 4, all these different people who are working in a variety of different ways, constructing the tabernacle itself. They're giving in a, a, a multitude, a myriad of ways. Some are giving financially or with resources. Other giving, others are giving with their time and their services. Now, here you see a delineation. Don't, don't sit here and go, oh, I get to choose one? Yeah, I'll just do the work thing and save the money. Or I can give some money, but I don't want to have to do anything. Now, you, you don't get to go there over the course of the scriptures. Okay, the Bible is going to push you really, really hard. Hey, you're on the hook for both of these things. But part of what's helpful about this is just realizing that we do, in fact, give in a variety of different ways. Sometimes you'll be able to serve. Other times you're going to help finance or bankroll or be the resource or be the home or be the whatever it is to pull something off. But we give in a multitude of ways. We give. We give, we give, we give, we give. You know what word I'm not saying? Is we get. We give. No, I want to get. No, no, we give but Mike, I really want to get. Can we just be honest about what is plaguing the American church in the form of consumerism? Let's just be honest about this for a minute. Because most people in the church, when they walk through the doors, they're not asking the question, what can I give and where can I serve? Most people walk through the doors and they go, what can I get? What are you going to give to me? And how is this going to make me better? It's about me. In fact, I, I don't even think we realize to the degree that we are so just enmeshed in consumerism in our society. And so I think for a lot of people, we don't even realize how we've imported it right into the church. So I'm not saying this in this angry sense or how dare you. I'm just saying, step back and evaluate. And I go, oh my goodness, I, I do that. I treat the church like I do Target or Walmart or the grocery store or a restaurant. God help us. God help us that our attitude would be, God, how can I give? Where can I serve? How can I share? And what can I participate in? And not just, what can I get and what's in it for me? Missional living. We embrace God's call. We give generously to God's work. Here's the third thing, and this is the real big, broad one. We labor diligently in God's work. So look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 of chapter 36. And we're going to fly over about four and a half chapters here in 30 seconds. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle. Okay, we're going to make the whole thing. And then, essentially, that's what unfolds for almost the rest of the book. It's very much a repeat of what we saw back in verses 25, or chapters 25 through 30. And so you can even just look at the headings in your Bible. Uh, they make the ark, they make the table, the lampstand, the altar, uh, the, the, all these different things. Uh, the, the, the basin, the court, they're making the garments. Over the next four and a half chapters, all of these different things that are being made. In fact, let me, let me draw us to a couple of texts later here. Go to chapter 39, verse 42, kind of as a summary of this. It says this, 39, 42, According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, 
So the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so, he, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. And the summary of like, they did what God told them to do. And then, in fact, if you read through chapter 40, eight different times, you're going to see uh, some variation of this phrase. As the Lord had commanded Moses. As the Lord had commanded Moses. As the Lord had commanded. All these different things that the Lord had commanded of Moses, and they did. Let me just say two things here about this idea of laboring diligently in God's work. First of all, we labor to be obedient in God's work. God had given Moses instructions on the mountain. And now we're seeing that those things are being executed. They're being done the way that God had asked them to be done. He's saying, hey, do this. And now they're doing it. It's the same for you and I. Right? As the Lord had commanded They see obedience, right? We see obedience in God's work. God laid out for Israel what he wanted done. And now they're simply following through on that. Now, you know that this is true for you and I today as well. God has laid out, God has given clear direction of what he expects of his people and what he calls you and I to do and to be. No, we're not going to build a a tent in the desert. We're not going to make a table or a basin or an altar. That's not what God's given us. What has God given to us? Well, you go to the end of Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. That's what we put up here, proclaiming Jesus and making disciples. You go to the beginning of Acts. Go and be my witnesses. The task, the mission that God has given to his people is to go tell the rest of the world who God is and what he's done, which is not at all any different than what God was doing with Israel in the wilderness. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. That we're to go and to make disciples. Disciples that we're going to labor to be obedient in God's work. Now, some of us are like, well, it'd be easier to build a tent. That's more in line with my skill set or my coworkers aren't going to think that I'm kind of weird or this Jesus freak or some oddball nut job religious wacko. So can I just do something physical and not share the gospel? No, you can't. The New Testament doesn't let us go there. God's word just simply doesn't let us go there. So church, can, can we endeavor to be people who share Jesus? Can, can, can we endeavor to do this? Can, can, can we take serious the call to make disciples? Can we work hard? Listen, listen, let's work hard to get better at this. Mike, I'm a one out of 10. Okay, well, let's move to a two. I'm a five out of 10. Let's get to five and a half or six. Not saying that we have to be perfect. We're never going to be perfect. But man, God help us. God help us that we would be willing to move forward in this and take serious. I'm going to labor diligently in this. No, I'm not going to build a tabernacle, but I, but I do get to be a part of building a kingdom. That's awesome. Let's be a part of that. So we labor to be obedient in God's work. Also this, we labor to reveal Jesus in God's work. You're like, uh, I know we didn't read over those four chapters. Pretty sure Jesus isn't mentioned. Yeah, I know he's not specifically mentioned. If you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about chapters 25 through 30, how we talked about the tabernacle in, in all kinds of different ways is pointing us to Jesus. And so part of what we want to do in the same way that God here with the nation of Israel, helping them to understand and to see and reveal who Jesus is, we want to do that for people in our lives as well. We want to help to reveal who Jesus is. 
In fact, when you think about the tabernacle, multiple New Testament authors are going to pick up on this and they're going to use Jesus to help us understand what was actually happening with respect to the tabernacle. The second half of the book of Hebrews, almost all of it, is about that very thing. So we want to labor to reveal Jesus in God's work. Here's what I think is actually happening in this broad section and why I'm just treating it in totality. I think with the tabernacle, what God is doing is he is giving the people of God a category, a sign, a marker to help them eventually understand who Jesus is and what Jesus would do. Let me try to illustrate this. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone who has no concept of any biblical things whatsoever? Ever been there? I have this one gal who was a good friend of mine in high school. Um, she was Jewish, really in name only, uh, but, but Jewish. And so I remember being like, oh, okay, so l- let's come at this from the Old Testament. And I, I said, so, you know, like with Noah or with Moses. And she goes, who? Uh, okay, uh, Abraham's that name ring a bell? Uh-uh. David? You mean the guy from second period? Okay, no, this is obviously not working. So here's my question. Where do you start? Where do you start when someone has no category. Let me give you another example. Imagine you got in a time machine and you went back three, 400 years ago. Now explain a smartphone. So, Hey, I've got this phone. What? A phone. Okay. What's that? Well, you know, you make calls with it. Calls. What's a call? Well, so you dial this number and then it connects you with, I have no idea what you're talking. Okay. Well, so, okay. Forget the call. So you can send texts What's a text? Well, it's like an electronic message. What's electronic, right? Okay, so we've got these apps. I have no idea what you're talking about. You're lost, right? And so where do you start? How do you begin to explain this? See, I think if God dropped Jesus on the people of Israel in the wilderness, they have no category by which to understand him. What the tabernacle does is for the next 15 centuries helps the people of God to actually understand God's ultimate work. Here's just a few examples of that. The ark represents God's presence and reign with his people. The table represents God eating with his people and him dwelling and being with them. The lampstand represents God lighting the way for his people and giving illumination. The priest show us that not only one day will one person come into the presence of God, but all of God's people will come into the presence of God. The law represents the reordering of God's creation. We go on and on and on. But don't think for a second that God did not have Jesus in mind when he was constructing the tabernacle. In fact, check this out. You can go to the end of the Bible. Go to Revelation 21. Let me show you this real quick. So here's John. There's literally like 20 verses left in your Bible when he's saying this. Revelation 21, starting in verse 22. And he says this. And I saw no temple in the city. Time out. Temple was just the firm, fixed manifestation of the tabernacle. Okay? So there's no temple in the city. Why is there no temple in the city, John? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You don't need a temple anymore because the presence of God dwells amongst His people. Verse 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp. He's talking about the lampstand. Is the Lamb. John, at the very end of the Bible, is running all the way back to the book of Exodus, helping the people of God to make the connections. See, God's giving us a category. He's giving us something to help understand who he is and what God would ultimately do. So we want to labor diligently in God's work. We want to labor to be obedient in God's work. And we want to labor to reveal Jesus 
in God's work. Here's the final thing briefly. Uh, Go to chapter 40, verse 34. Pretty awesome summary to conclude the book of Exodus. Let me read these final five verses here. It says this, Then the cloud, upon completing the tabernacle... In fact, let me go back to the end of verse 33. So Moses finished the work. They're done. Verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What an awesome moment that had to be. And then check out this summary. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Wow. Here's the final part of missional living is that you and I remain in God's presence. That we remain in God's presence. We seek to stay, to remain, to dwell and to be in God's presence. It's crazy to think that the book of Exodus begins with the people of God as slaves building things for Pharaoh and it ends with them as freed people worshiping God in the wilderness. And the point of it specifically ends with them dwelling in God's presence. This is the best gift that God could give to his people. Is himself. This is the best gift that he could give them. This is what Moses fought so hard for back in Exodus 33. Is it not in your going with us that we're distinct? We're to pursue the presence of God. Loved ones, we're to pursue the presence of God. See, for them, if the cloud went, if it rose up and began to depart, they packed up and they departed. If the cloud stayed, they hunkered down and they stayed. Now, think about this. The people never knew when this was going to happen. It wasn't like, hey, a week from now, cloud's moving. Get ready. You'd wake up still here. I'm going to live in this space right here. Or you'd get up and like, oh, he's leaving. We, hey, you know what? Time to pull the plugs. Let's go. Pack it up. Let's get out of here. What they knew is that they were best served if God was going to stay, that they were best served to stay. And if God was going to go, they were best served to go. Now, I promise, I promise you, there were times when the people were anxious to move on and God's presence stayed. And it required patience and waiting for God. Some of you find yourself in the same place this morning. You're ready to move on. And God's saying, nope, we're going to stay right here. There are others of you who at other times undoubtedly wanted to stay. I'm comfortable. This is good. This is easy. And yet the cloud is lifting up and departing and going. And they have to continue to move. And it required perseverance for them to follow where God led, even if they didn't want to go. Loved ones, will we pursue the presence of God? Here's what I want to do. I got four questions. I want to say them. I want to, and then I want to give us just a few minutes to just think and pray and consider and wrestle with the Lord on these items. So here we go. Here are the four questions. And just as we begin to move through these, begin to just ask yourself between yourself and the Lord to begin to wrestle through these things. 
do I truly believe that living in God's presence is better than anything else? Am I convinced of that? I mean, has the book of Exodus not proven that without reservation? And yet, do you believe that in your heart of hearts? Secondly, am I willing to do whatever is necessary to remain in God's presence? I'm going to do whatever God calls me. Maybe I got to give something. Maybe I got to walk away from something. Maybe I got to engage something. I got to let something go. Am I willing to do whatever is necessary? Third, will you wait for God to move even when you're anxious or feel that it's overdue? And finally, will I persevere in following God even when I'm tired, I can't see it, or I'm struggling to follow? Just sit in that for a moment between yourself and the Lord and wrestle through these truths. Lord Jesus, we want to be people that will follow you. We want to be people who will seek to remain in your presence. God, we want to be people who live on mission, that that we live missionally. That the whole of our existence, what, what it's rooted in, what, what's at the foundation of that, is living for you, is following you, is pursuing you, is chasing you. And so God, help us. Would you help us to be people who, were, who will pursue you? People who believe that your presence is far greater than anything else. People who will do whatever it takes to stay and to live and to dwell and to function in your presence. God, help us to wait when you want us to wait, even though we want to go. And God, help us to go if we're comfortable and we want to stay where we're at, but you're calling us to move. Would you help us to be men and women who live missionally? We pray this in your name. Amen.